Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is Bryant Mason. Bryant is a certified crop advisor who specializes in organic cannabis nutrition. He has spent the last four years working to combine precision laboratory techniques with data science in an effort to unravel the complexities of cannabis soil and crop nutrition. Along with his work on soilless media, he also helps outdoor cultivators around the United States with nutrient management and cover cropping. If you would like to do soil testing, help with interpreting a soil test, or are interested in an online course on these subjects, his website is www.soildoctorconsulting.com. Now on to the show. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Tad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know you've been on the show multiple times here and, and people are listeners are probably familiar with who you are and what you do. Um, so let's just go ahead and, and dive right in. Uh, we had talked uh, before the show about one of a, one of my recent podcasts with uh, Paul Coxon and Patrick Vesey talking about phosphorus. And that was a topic that kind of sparked some interest in you. Um, do you want to share some of your, your feedback or, or some of your thoughts from, from that podcast? Sure. Well, first off, I just want to say that whenever I see any research related to cannabis nutrient management, I'm thrilled because it's just so many decades behind that. And, and there are so, so many questions and uh, so few answers scientifically, at least in the research, research literature that I just love seeing that kind of content. So I did listen to it. I loved it. Um, I think my dominant takeaway is, and I'm sure you share this, is a little bit of disappointment in the fact that all the nutrient research in cannabis production that I've seen is um, non-organic. And that changes things so dramatically. Um, The target nutrient levels that those researchers were talking about were so much higher than anything that I ever see in organic living soil systems. So it was tough for me to use their target numbers to ascertain any information about, you know, what we're seeing in organic soils. Um, so that was my first thing. And all the research that I've been reading is mostly in hydro solutions. It makes sense from a research standpoint because they're able to control more variables um, using soilless media and, and ionic nutrients. Um, but it's a little tough to to pull numbers from it. They were applying hundreds of PPM of, of soluble phosphorus in one of their studies. and and the interesting thing I remember hearing was that they weren't seeing any uh, negative, they weren't seeing a negative yield from huge whopping amounts of phosphorus, um, which I've sort of observed that as well. I don't recommend super high phosphorus levels, but I haven't seen um, really elevated soil or tissue phosphorus levels create any zinc, iron, or manganese deficiencies, uh, at least not very clearly. So that did add up to what I've seen. Um, working with growers. Now, when you look on Mulder's chart, for example, which shows sort of the antagonisms and, and such associated with various nutrients, you'll see that, that phosphorus does have uh, an antagonistic relationship, I believe, with iron 
and and zinc, I think, and a couple other elements. But yet, um, I've heard you talk about how it's it's sort of a luxury uh, nutrient in that we you're not seeing those sorts of issues with high levels. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, you know, Mulder's chart has always been a source of fascination for me um, because I've always wondered how it was developed, what crops they were using, because there are certain antagonisms that show up very quickly and very aggressively in different crops um, and not in others. So for whatever reason, uh, cannabis doesn't seem to exhibit these types of antagonisms as quickly and as easily as something like maybe a corn or soybean crop would. So um, I think that probably explains the difference with the Mulder's charge kind of depends on how it was uh, created. Usually, and I've seen this in other crop types, I've, I've seen zinc deficiencies that are from excess phosphorus application. Um, but like I said, I just haven't necessarily seen that in in cannabis. Now, there are other reactions too that may happen in the soil. So for with calcium, calcium phosphate is a classic insoluble precipitate that can happen with, with really elevated levels of, of uh, phosphorus. But in organic systems, most of that phosphorus that we're applying is um, either through compost, soft rock phosphate, or bone meal. So um, it's not in these highly soluble forms that are going to precipitate out um, in the soil as easily. And that's why on a standard soil test, you might see pretty large amount of phosphate, um, but you're not going to see as much in the solution. The only time I see very elevated uh, soluble phosphorus numbers is when people are using phosphoric acid to usually to pH down their water. Or uh, I just want to add on that if they're using fish hydrolysate or something that's stabilized with phosphoric acid, I've also seen that. Um, and then the last time I've seen it is in soil mixes that have uh, a lot of uh, bat guano high phosphorus bat guano, which you and I were talking about um, prior to the show starting. So yeah, you can see in organics where what's causing it. And, and that, that to me always really stands out when you have a really high available phosphorus number on your saturated paste. But on that note, I consistently have growers with quite low available P, you know, like 0.5, for example, on the saturated paste. And yet we're not seeing P deficiencies necessarily in the plant, at least visually. Um, and yields seem, seem to be quite good still. Um, what are your thoughts on all that? Yes, that's a fascinating one. I've always uh, found that phosphorus is one of the least accurate nutrients to manage based on soil test results. It helps to have the standard test and the paste test in the case of phosphate. I actually put a little bit more weight on the standard test when it comes to looking at phosphorus because of um, phosphorus dynamics are very biologically driven. So the general theory that I work off of is if you can have a large enough reservoir of phosphorus in your soil, microorganisms are mineralizing phosphate um, and delivering to the plant, delivering them to the plant root pretty efficiently. And so it's very rare in natural ecosystems and in agro ecosystems for soluble phosphorus levels to accumulate to very high levels. The other issue is in a new soil, it's been sitting in the bag, a lot of that phosphorus is mineralized. And so you might see three or four parts per million on the pace test. But as soon as you water it, and as soon as those plants start growing, it usually drops. Um, and without supplemental feeds, yeah, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 is usually what you see on the pace test. And I've seen very little correlation um, to what ultimately matters which is the plant tissue. And so as long as levels are sufficient on the, on the tissue test, that's all I care about. 
Um, so really, yeah. you know, I have a range of, of phosphorus on tissue and as long as it's in that range and ideally on the high end of that range, I have no concerns whatsoever. I will say that there is a correlation between sufficient tissue levels and what's seen on that standard test in pounds per acre of phosphate. So I really like to keep, um, I like to slowly build phosphorus levels in soil uh, until that number is sufficient. Well, my next podcast uh, that I'm actually recording later this week is with uh, Dr. Carrie Peters over at Jack's uh, Fertilizer. She's the chemist over there talking about tissue testing specifically. So we'll definitely dive into that more for listeners here really soon, which I'm I'm excited about. Um, but I want to I want to talk to you about the the uh, phosphorus number on the standard test on the Malik three test. Um, how is that tied or is it tied to the exchange capacity of the soil? And then I want to kind of dive into CEC, TCC and sort of what, what those challenges are with, um, you know, what we're calling living soils, soilless media versus actual soil. Yeah. Great. So, um, most phosphorus in a peat based media is, um, not on any exchange sites. A lot of it's tied up in compost. And so as microbes slowly decompose that compost, it's released. Um, it's also tied up in rock phosphate minerals and um, different uh, animal-based meals, like I said, fish bone meal or just standard bone meal. And usually agronomically, the traditional um, CEC definition is more focused on the soil's ability to hold cations and phosphate is actually a negatively charged anion. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not usually very related to the CEC. Um, so the CEC cation exchange capacity is the, the interesting thing about CEC on a soil test, especially on peat based media is it's actually a calculation. It's not a direct measurement. So what I mean by that is, is, Usually if you're, if a soil test comes back, they're directly measuring how much calcium and nitrogen and zinc are in that soil. They're using a, a machine called an ICP and they're directly measuring the parts per million of that nutrient. And with TEC or CEC, they're sort of synonymous. Um, it's actually a calculation that's adding calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium together, the cationic uh, macronutrients and making some small adjustments for, um, other bases and hydrogen, but, but it's a, it's a calculation that's summing all of those cations extracted in the Malik three solution. And so the Malik three has a pH of 2.5. It's dissolving those into solution and the, the lab just adds them all up based on what the, the numbers of nutrients are. And the, the reason that this is a problem is because usually in traditional agronomic calculations, you apply more nutrients to a higher uh, CEC soil. So in a peat-based media, you're going to see higher CEC when you have more cationic nutrients. And so you will apply more nutrients and you keep applying more and more and all of a sudden you've, you've over-applied. So it's a bit of a positive feedback loop. So that's one issue. Um, so how I look at the, the CEC measurement is more of a more of a of an almost like an ec measurement but just for the cations if that makes sense um, because usually okay. cec was developed for 
for mineral topsoils and especially acidic topsoils without any excess mineral salts. And these cations are, are essentially binding to, to clay particles, the negatively charged site, sites on clay. And so um, when you add all of those together, it gives you a pretty good sense of, of all of those sites in the soil. But in, in soilless media or in peat-based media, um, that's not really how it works. Most of those cations exist in compost or minerals or just floating around in, in, the, in the media matrix. Yeah. So I have some questions about that. So, um, anecdotally, when I see, uh, a high exchange capacity, I'll see, um, I'll see higher levels of our cations, you know, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium. Um, but I also tend to see higher phosphate and sulfur levels. Um, is that just because on average when growers are when we're seeing those high cation levels, it's just growers are probably over applying P and S too. They're not actually tied in any way mathematically to that calculation. You nailed it. So, um, you know, when you apply to, to get high calcium or to get high magnesium, um, or potassium, you, they're usually applied in the form of, you know, gypsum or potassium sulfate, or even just compost, right. That brings in all the nutrients in a package. So, nutrient levels tend to be correlated because in organic production, we're, we're sort of applying them um, together. Even if it's just gypsum, it's still calcium and sulfur together. So you'll see both of those levels climb simultaneously, but you're, you're right on with the, the math is not connected okay. to EC and any anion is not connected. Okay. And then the way I've always thought of CEC is like, uh, a giant sponge. So like, what's the soil, like when we're talking about actual soil here, like sand, silk, clay's ability to retain nutrients, cations. Um, and so the, the higher the CEC, the more clay in there, uh, the more nutrients it's going to take for that soil to be saturated and have a lot of like plant available fertility. So there's, there's pros and cons to high C soil, a low C soil, let's say like sandy soils in Florida, for example, um, you're going to be constantly applying low levels of nutrients because it's not, it doesn't have any ability to retain those nutrients for the plant. However, if your CEC in actual soil is quite high, you may have to apply a lot of nutrients just to move the needle a little bit and maintain fertility. Is that an okay way of describing anything you would change or tweak in that sort of layman's definition? I think that's a pretty good way to think about it. Um, a sponge is a good analogy. I've also often seen like a dinner plate, you know, and you can like only hold so many ions on that dinner plate and the dinner plate is representing a clay colloid. Um, I think, well, I think Brandon or someone who works for you in an email to me uh, referred to them as docking sites, which I really liked. Um, there's only so many docking sites on a, on a clay mineral and these cations can attach. And once all the docking sites are full, there's nowhere for these ions to attach. And so they'll leach out of the soil over time. Um, and that's why agronomically, you really assume that there's no excess ions in the soil that don't, aren't cations that aren't attached to a docking site because they've all leached out. And so if you extract all the cations and add them up, then you have a really good estimate of how much how many docking sites there are in your soil and so i think that was a good explanation and i think um it's just a tough thing to apply to peat-based media because those docking sites don't exist it's just a matrix of peat and compost coca core uh aggregate minerals and and so they're not actually um exchanging in the traditional sense 
That, that makes sense. So it's really just a measure of your fertility in a lot of ways. It's not actually um, telling you what this, there's no real CEC there. Um, exactly. But one, one thing I don't quite understand then is if the way the lab measures it is by measuring, by adding up all these cations, essentially to give you that number, how do they, how do they determine in actual soil what a CEC is? Because a soil may have a high CEC, but have very little cations in it, right? At a, at a given point in time, how do they determine that? So they, they do the same thing. They extract all of the cationic nutrients and then add them up. Um, and they adjust for atomic weight. They divide by other bases and exchangeable hydrogen. So they're accounting for a few other things, but the point is they add it all up and they estimate the CEC. But if, um, when you incorporate all of the cations that we mentioned, the nutrient cations and hydrogen, um, a soil with a low, uh, a high CEC with low nutrient levels, um, will be acidic. That's, that's because all of those exchange sites will be occupied by something. And if they're not occupied by calcium, magnesium, potassium, or sodium, it's going to be hydrogen. And so that soil will be acidic. So in a high CEC soil without a lot of nutrients, you're going to see a lot of hydrogen ions. Um, but something is going to occupy those exchange sites. That, that makes a lot more sense to me. I, most of the soils that we work with are, are pretty close to neutral. Um, so I don't see that as, as much, but uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about that really quickly because there is that exchangeable hydrogen uh, that people will see on the standard test and, and, you know, it only shows up when you have obviously acidic soils. Uh, what does that number really tell us? It doesn't, honestly, I've asked Logan to get rid of it. it it's a, it's a source of confusion. <laughs> it's a hundred percent correlated to pH. So it'll be zero with pHs above seven and it'll tick up with pHs um, below seven. And so it's really just a different way to look at pH and there's no useful value to the percent exchangeable hydrogen on the soil test. Awesome. Um, let's, let's move on to organic matter yeah, and how topic. that relates to a soilless media versus actual soil and what, what target should be. Great. So organic matter does involve a direct measurement, unlike CEC. And the measurement is, is, a, is taken from a technique called loss on ignition, which, um, estimates organic matter based on the weight change of the soil after they heat it up to a really high temperature, I believe 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So almost as hot as, you know, combustion flame. Um, and at that temperature, there's a lot of oxidation of, of organic matter. And so they weigh the sample before they weigh it after. And essentially they're, they're weighing how much carbon is lost at, at 800 degrees. In topsoil, that carbon is primarily organic matter. Um, I believe organic matter is 58% carbon. So it's an inexpensive and it's an accurate enough technique to be widely used in soil testing. Um, It's really the best method at scale for testing organic matter in soil, or at least estimating organic matter. Um, And it's it's pretty accurate. But in In peat-based media, in actual soil, in mineral-based soils, if you go out in your backyard or whatever, in peat-based media, there's two problems here. The first is that the carbon that is oxidized 
is in a peat-based media is not real organic matter. It's primarily peat moss or coca core or immature compost. Those things aren't technically organic matter um, in the same sense that it is in a real mineral topsoil. They're carbon-based, so they show well, they up are, as organic they, matter. They just behave differently is essentially what you're getting at, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean they are organic matter. They're being the yeah, carbon-based, right? I guess right? it sort of depends on how you define organic matter. But in, in most, I mean, most soil scientists would characterize organic matter. Um, at least what we're trying to get at with organic matter is a long-chain carbon compound that has taken a long time to form and is fairly recalcitrant, meaning it's it doesn't decompose very easily or very quickly, and it provides nutrients and a very sort of diverse microbial habitat. And so by that definition, peat moss doesn't really fit because um, it doesn't have, it's kind of inert, it doesn't have many nutrients, it's not, it's like a totally different carbon chain than like, I mean, there's the, the, this is sort of an antiquated word, but humus, you know, is, is this substance, this magical sort of jet fuel in the soil. It's totally different than that. So yes, it's organic in nature in the sense that it's made out of carbon, but it doesn't give us all the, the plant health and agronomic benefits that true long chain organic matter does in the soil. Um, it doesn't give us all the, the benefits when it turns over and when it changes form. Um, so it's just a totally different species of, of carbon. So when we look at the organic matter on a peat-based media, um, it's not, it's, it's really just kind of showing us the weight loss. And that gets to the second issue, which is the measurements highly correlated to bulk density. Because if your soil is super fluffy right out of the bag, it's going to have, it's going to show a higher organic matter. Um, but as we all know that bulk density changes over time, you know, that's why the, the, if you grow in a pot, it looks like the soil sinks two to four inches in the first round, um, that bulk density is increasing. So organic matter is going to jump all over the place based on bulk density. And they make an assumption with topsoil, uh, uh, bulk density assumption that's usually pretty accurate, but in peat based media, it's really not. So usually a new peat-based media is going to see, you know, show high organic matter and high CEC right out of the bag because it's fluffy and is full of nutrients, but those numbers are going to jump wildly. So those are two issues. There's two more issues. I can kind of stop there. Um, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to just present one more, which is that this may be the biggest issue in my opinion is not the technical nature of how they tested and blah, blah, blah. It's more around what do you do with the number? Because the purpose of testing if you're going to pay money to get a test, it's it's to determine some kind of action you can take as a grower. And so if there's no management action that you can take with 40% organic matter, 30%, then to me, that's the biggest issue with any metric because the purpose of these soil tests is to, is to take some kind of valuable information and then go apply it via action. So it's not tied at all to the CEC uh, directly no. at least. They're totally no, the separate measurement is methods. not okay. Totally separate, That's good and, to and know. yeah, there's very little correlation uh, between those two numbers. So, so the bottom line is ignore organic matter percentage if you're not testing actual soil. Yes. Now, if you are testing actual soil, how does the application of compost come into play in affecting that organic matter and giving us an accurate number of what our percent really is because i could imagine if i applied compost 
uh, earlier in the season, tilled it in or top dressed it. I take my sample. Some of it ends up in the sample. The sample, remember, is only half a teaspoon of actual material when we're talking about the Malik 3. Um, mm-hmm. What's that going to do? Yes. So, and that's a great point because this, the first problem I talked about, which is that we're testing peat, peat moss or immature compost and not organic matter in the traditional sense, that problem exists outdoors too, where loads of compost have been applied. <laughs> so you apply compost, your organic matter jumps from 2% to 10%. You're super proud of yourself, right? But that's just measuring the carbon from your compost, which is good. It's, it means that your, your carbon inputs are high, and that is one of the many variables that leads to the formation of stable organic matter. But it's not true organic matter by the traditional definition. So um, that too is an issue. And I've, I worked with a lot of um, small organic vegetable growers, and they use large amounts of compost, and their organic matter is very, very high on a soil test. And mm-hmm. It's also, you know, when, when compost is applied, it goes through a multi-year decomposition process. And so that number is going to jump all over the place. Um, and so that the organic matter number gives you a little bit of information, like, you know, this soil has been cultivated, it's has high organic, uh, inputs, but it's not necessarily something that should be managed very closely, even in a, uh, you know, conventional broad acre cropping system, the organic matter number should be looked at over, I would say a five to 10 year horizon and not a year to year number. Um, because to your point, there's organic matter, matter variation in soils as there is in just everything in nature. So, um, you are going to see a little bit of fluctuation. You shouldn't see large, like full percentage points, but you'll see maybe Hmm. tenths or even at a half of a percent fluctuation year to year. So you really should be looking at, at it over, you know, a five or 10 year horizon, even in real topsoil. So it's a very crude uh, measurement. It's very important. We all know that organic matter is one of the most important things um, for organic agriculture and for soil health and for plant health. But it's a, it's a really tough thing to measure accurately when your soil test costs 50 bucks. Yeah. So we're really looking for trends. Is it trending in the right direction? Is it, is it moving up? Is it moving down? Correct. That's, correct. I think, I think that's the key there. Okay. But in a P-based um, media, just to, just to be clear, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even worry about the trend. Yeah. I've seen it jump all over the place based on the sample. So I don't, I, I tend to ignore it too. Um, well, uh, you know, sticking on the topic of, uh, nutrients, um, we were going to talk about uh, ratios sort of versus levels because you get these ratios of what what your cations are made up of, um, how much of it is calcium, how much is magnesium, how much is potassium. How important is that relative to just the actual values in pounds per acre of calcium, magnesium, and potassium in terms of sufficiency? Yeah, so there's there's sort of ratios. Gosh, there's, the ratio conversation is fun because there's <laughs> people throw around a lot of ratios, and it depends on uh, the kind of test you're taking. So, for example, I look at ratios on both a tissue test and a soil test. I look at ratios on the standard test, like base cation percentages, as well as on the, 
the pace test. So the ratios that I think matter the most, I, I am, um, I've always really looked at calcium to potassium as a ratio. Um, and I look at that primarily on the tissue test. I also look at iron to manganese. Um, there's another very popular one that I don't necessarily put a lot of weight on, which is nitrogen to potassium. But to, I think what you're asking is probably around the standard test base cation saturation ratio ratios. Is that right? Yeah, and also the soluble cation ratios. Okay, great, great. Too. So yeah, so yes. on the the, the 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 soil tests, um, a very common sort of like Albrecht based approach is to look at uh, what I call BCSR, and it's the percentages of cations extracted by the malic three and all over the internet on all kinds of different websites there's these percentages that generally fall between like 70 68 to 80 percent calcium uh 10 to 15 percent magnesium and three to seven percent potassium i uh look at those but i don't put a lot of weight on them because i prefer when managing a peat-based media for cannabis production, I like looking at the saturated paste test. And in that regard, um, I do look at the percentages um, because what those percentages are telling you is balance. And so my general approach to nutrient management is you have to achieve sufficient nutrient levels, and then you want to work toward balance between those nutrients. So you can have a perfectly balanced, um, you can have perfectly balanced cation nutrients, let's say on the paste test, but it doesn't actually matter if there's just not enough food in that soil for those plants to eat. It doesn't matter how balanced it is. And so the first thing I do is I, I have sufficiency levels um, of nutrients. And then the next thing I do is I look at those percentages. And I really like um, to see calcium generally at about 50%, magnesium at about 20 and potassium at about 20 and, um, for those who are doing the math, that leaves 10% to be allocated elsewhere. Um, oftentimes that goes to sodium and, and sometimes it goes to one of those other nutrients just based on fluctuations or, you know, how you like to run your, your soil. And what I've found is that that's, that is by far most important. It's the most correlated to the actual tissue tests in general. It's correlated too to those those standard test BCSR ratios, which are usually you know that what sort of translates is usually about seven percent potassium on the standard test. Um, I do not like to go above twelve percent magnesium on the standard test, and I always want to be above sixty percent, ideally well above seventy percent on calcium. And usually, if you can, usually those will lead to the right soil solution balance, but. I don't try, I don't manage for that standard test percentage because it's sort of the tail that wags the dog. I go right to the pace test and I look at sufficiency and balance on the pace test. Okay. And I want to reiterate, uh, what you, what you just said there. I think that's really important. Um, if the soluble salt level on your soil, your EC is, is low, like let's say you had 200 PPM on soluble salts, that soil, uh, it, it doesn't matter if it's perfectly balanced, you're going to run out of nutrients relatively quickly um versus a soil with a much higher ec or soluble salt level so um i, I think that's important because i've seen some soil tests from from folks where you know everything looks balanced but at the end of the day uh if that if the amount of fertility is low it doesn't it doesn't really matter you're going to run out and you are have to add nutrients and those aren't going to necessarily be balanced anyway so 
I think that's a really important point you brought up. Um, also, uh, as you're, as you're looking at this, um, when you talk about hitting, uh, sufficiency first, um, just switching topics here. One of the things we talked about was, um, sort of luxury nutrients. Um, where do you get concerned about, um, sort of excesses and toxicities when we talk about our major, uh, cations and ions, you know, versus say things that, you know, you're not too worried if you see high levels of sulfur, for example. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, um, every nutrient by the way is, is sort of, <laughs> a separate topic. And so they're all very different. And how I look at each one, how I look at each one on, a, on the soil test is, is they're all different. Yeah, it's so, but to answer your question, um, the worst cation to have in excess is sodium. It's not an essential plant nutrient. And it simply, it, it puts undue pressure on the electrical conductivity and the osmotic um, pressure that it exerts on, on roots. So it, there's, in a perfect world, you'd have zero ppm of sodium. There's just no purpose. Um, but that's impossible in organic soil-based systems. So sodium as low as possible. That's the worst thing to have in excess. Luckily, it's very mobile, so you can leach it out um, or flush it out of your soil. The next thing would be if magnesium. It's not, if it's not in your water, I want to highlight that because some people sure. have sodium in their water or they're using conditioners to their water that's adding sodium. So flushing high-sodium soils with sodium water doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just want to mention yeah, that. For sure. Sorry. I mean, the one thing about high sodium water, how you can manage it, a traditional method is you accept it. This is the water we've got elevated in sodium. We can't filter it or whatever. So you just water, 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 and then you flush because what happens is the water evaporates, leaves the sodium behind. And so the levels start to accumulate and you, so you can theoretically flush that out even with your high sodium water but it's, it's never going to get it low. It's just going to revert back to whatever your water level is. Um, but yeah, to your point, you can never get it. You can never manage to zero if it's in your water. Um, so the next one though, I want to bring up, which is a tricky one in organic, uh, peat based media is magnesium and magnesium's magnesium is, is, uh, often high, often excessive and it's antagonistic and it's not needed in nearly the quantity that calcium and potassium are in the plant tissue. Um, and it gets in the way and it can, can really create sort of this gentle antagonism that you're not necessarily going to see visually, but it's slowing down your plants and reducing yield and crop quality. So, um, magnesium is a tough one to manage. My approach is I like to set a minimum sufficient level for magnesium. And then I have a, an optimization algorithm that changes the level of calcium and potassium if magnesium's high to just try to maintain balance um, because those are always competing for one another. And so I'm looking at both the PACE test, the percentage on the PACE test and the percentage on the, on the Malik 3. And like I said, I, I never apply any magnesium if the percentage is above 12% because what tends to happen is when you apply gypsum, it opens up um, and, and magnesium flows into solution. So magnesium is one of the more complicated things to look at and manage. Um, and it's not as easy when you have excess magnesium, I still think you should leach your soil. You'll see those levels drop, especially the soluble levels. Um, but you're never actually going to be able to pull it all out. The key is you just try to minimize the inputs with high magnesium. Um, I never, 
I sometimes very rarely I'll recommend a little dolomitic lime in a real topsoil, but never in a peat based media. And um, so really the only source, the only two sources of magnesium I'm ever recommending might be a little bit of um, like a potassium magnesium sulfate. It's an organic mineral. Um, I call it langbanite as the mineral name, but there's different trade names like K-Mag or Sulpomag. Um, yeah. And then otherwise, I think Epsom salt as a foliar is a great way to just give small amounts of magnesium to your plant as needed um, based on visual symptoms or tissue tests. And you're never applying it to the soil to push those levels up. So I like running that a little bit low and maintaining uh, plenty of sufficiency and, and more of a weighted balance toward calcium and potassium. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I always run magnesium low in our soils because I know it's so easy to add via Epsom so salt easy and affordable. Add. Exactly. And yep. I'll, we'll actually, you know, on occasion do um, Epsom salt drenches, just like a tablespoon per gallon of water um, when we see that magnesium level drop. But I like the foliar idea too. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I, I wasn't aware of something being something you could really flush very effectively. And I assume if you did, you're also going to have to add a lot of fertility back in because you've probably, you've, you've absolutely flushed the more mobile nutrients out too, like phosphate, nitrogen, potassium, things like that, sodium. Yeah. And every, everything on the pace test is going to be mobile because it's just, it's floating. It's not real. So good when you, when you leach heavily because you have an excess of something, everything is going to go down. It's sort of like a hard refresh. So um, for example, like, yeah, when I, when I see something sodium, maybe over 45 parts per million on the pace test, the soil doctor tool will recommend, or my, you know, my recommendations will recommend leaching your soil and that'll flush everything. And then you're going to reset, retest and reamend. Um, and that over the long term is a far better approach to plant health than just continuing to push. Now, sodium, some strains and in some operations, sodium is okay. It's not like, it's not toxic. It's just going to create excess osmotic stress on the plant. So you're getting a more, you're getting more efficient metabolism um, when it's lower. The plant's having to work harder in that soil to access nutrients, essentially is what you're saying. Correct. And there is um, in certain crop species, like a substitution effect that happens where it starts using sodium instead of potassium, um, which is less efficient metabolically. Hmm. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. That's interesting. Um, well, then let's, let's, uh, let's move on to a couple of the other, touch on some of the other minerals here. You've talked about magnesium and sodium so far. What's, uh, what's another one that, uh, You've talked about two rel relatively, you know, antagonistic ones that we want to monitor. Um, what, what's another one you want to sort of yeah, discuss? Yeah, well, and, and the other thing just to mention on these cations is a lot of them are influenced by more than the levels and the balance. They're influenced by evapotranspiration and, and irrigation technique and uh, root size. And so I can't stress enough that it's really, really, really valuable to, to – use tissue testing to validate because oftentimes you can have enough calcium, but you don't see enough in the plant. And it's a different issue you need to address entirely like watering um, or maybe your relative humidity or your VPD. So tissue testing is really 
a good way to, to make sure that there aren't other issues with nutrient uptake. Um, but to talk about other nutrients, I mean, I, nitrogen is a fascinating one um, in the sense that I do think um, of, of all the nutrients, I, I generally recommend maintaining fairly stable concentrations. That's the goal in organic production. Um, you know, there's a lot of things happening. The microbes are breaking down amendments and releasing nutrients. The plants are uptaking them. Nutrients are being sort of leached to the bottom of your beds um, when you water. So there's a bunch of different things happening, but the goal should be to tr really try to maintain consistent levels, sufficient levels throughout the entire round of most nutrients. But nitrogen is a little different in the sense that um, it's going to be taken up quickly and in high quantities by the plant. And generally speaking, I like to have, um, you know, high, but not excessive levels through veg. And I like nitrogen levels to draw down through veg, um, to sort of, to change the carbon and nitrogen balance in the plant with the theory that you're sort of optimizing quality or terpene expression, um, with lower nitrogen levels. It doesn't, doesn't mean zero nitrogen at all. Cause you still need nitrogen for plant metabolism and protein synthesis and flower development. Um, but a lot of that nitrogen is actually being moved from, from the plant's existing tissue. So there's already a lot of nitrogen that's taken up, um, through the plant cycle that the plant is then using in flower. Um, and so nitrogen uptake really goes down and, uh, you can, you can create some issues by running nitrogen too hard, too late in flower. And so I, that is, that, that one is interesting to me because, um, I do think that should be measured and, and it should be managed a little bit differently, um, by not necessarily maintaining this, the same concentration through the whole, entire cycle. Yeah, we do see that, you know, when you have high nitrogen, you'll see, uh, you'll have very like larfy plants that just won't yield and they'll be super dark green. Um, we, we do see it, uh, but rarely because most of the time we can control nitrogen through flushing. So if you do have too much nitrogen, it's pretty easy to lower it. Um, but one question I did have for you, uh, that we didn't, we didn't answer, answer was, um, for people who do want to flush, how much water do you recommend by volume, um, to run yeah. through an, an average soil? Well, so one, one thing about flushing is it's, I don't think it's great to do in the middle of a round. Sometimes you have to, if you have a really good mm -hmm. draining soil, um, then go for it. But I also think that if you, it, it can create more harm than good. If, if you, if your soil doesn't necessarily have high drainage capacity, I, I like to wait until after you harvest to leach. Um, and there's no magic way to do it. I mean, one way to do it is you just water your beds or your pots and you just measure the EC of the runoff. And I generally say just wherever your EC is, keep watering until it's 50% of where you started. Um, that's one method. The other method would be to, I just say like water until like six inches or 12 inches run out of the bottom of the pots or the beds. It really depends on the severity of what you're dealing with. So if you, if you are, you know, if you failed for heavy metals or if you just have, if you have 150 PPM of sodium on the pace test and you just want a, and like I said, a hard refresh, then, um, just, just really go for it until you get a foot of runoff or something. Um, so it really kind of depends on the severity. There's no magic number that necessarily it's really, really depends on, on what you're trying to do. 
Yeah, I guess for me, the situations where I may want to leach mid-round is where I get a soil test back from a, a commercial grower who's, you know, mid-flower, plants aren't developing. I see on this test they've got 300 ppm of nitrates in there. Um, I, I, I feel like, and then I'm going to have a conversation like, hey, we're going to get a yield, but it's not going to be the yield that you want. Do we stress the plant by overwatering it where it's going to, you know, you're, you're, you're potentially impacting the biology of the soil. You're killing some, some root hairs. Um, you're, you're causing plant stress, but you're going to lower that nitrate level. What's better, I guess, is the scenario there. And, and what would your thought be with a hypothetical like that? You know, I think if you... It, it just totally depends on the composition of the media. If it's like a horizontal system or something that just, I don't know, something that's not, well, that's not true. If it was a horizontal system, I would still, what I would probably recommend mid round is to do a slower leaching event. So to do like multiple pulses that are sort of pushing the water like this, but still pulling air into the profile between each leaching event. So instead of just one, like, you know, four hour irrigation set, I might just say water to run off six times in a row. Um, that's one idea. I don't know what in I would one do. Day, I think I would, or would you... information. Okay. Are, are, are many people doing a horizontal system? Honestly, I don't, we don't work with anyone that grows like that. I know it's, somewhat popular online but I, I feel like the challenges with watering like you mentioned and and fertility sort of move me away from it i know that several people who have received soil recommendations from me are using it but i'm not um actively engaged having conversations with them on a weekly basis mm -hmm. but yeah i think i mean i've heard a lot of people doing it um i also just think like I've mixed media doing tests that is extremely porous and I've mixed media where I incorporate five or 10% of my topsoil from my farm and changes the drainage dramatically. So, yeah, I mean, I think you can sure. leach. I just get a little bit nervous about it because, um, everyone has a different situation, but I think in pots, when you have a true peat based media and pots, I think drainage is fine you just water until you get heavy runoff and there's no issue whatsoever but i think it's something to be aware of i just want to mention it no that's a good point i think uh just for listeners like if you're if we're talking about pro mix that's a very different conversation than talking about something that's oh i don't know like you said has actual topsoil in it and is some sort of horizontal system that's not going to drain the same that you're going to have some perched water challenges and other things with water movement through the media potentially yeah. Okay. Well, enough on that. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, was there anything else? You, I, I know we could probably do a whole podcast just on nitrogen, but was there anything else you wanted to touch on besides the fact that uh, nit nitrogen really needs to be managed and you can absolutely have too much? Um, wow. There's a million things we talk about. Uh, amino acids are interesting um, to me from a nitrogen standpoint. Um, and I just think that, that the only other thought I want to throw out there for folks is when you're, when you're using organic nitrogen amendments, all of them, including amino acids have to go through the nitrogen cycle. Um, I 
I think maybe even on the last podcast here, for the last several years, I generally thought, and I had been told um, from other experienced agronomists and consultants that that amino acid uptake is much more metabolically efficient and it saves the plant an enormous amount of energy because the plant doesn't have to convert nitrate back into amino acids to create plant tissue. It just uses the amino acids directly. And my thinking on that has actually evolved quite a bit. Mm. And I don't actually think that plants are uptaking amino acids in significant quantities at all because um the the, well i've I've reviewed a lot of of the research on amino acid uptake and i actually think most of it's getting converted into ammonium and then nitrate the plant takes it up and then it gets converted back into amino acids so it is true that theoretically you get a huge metabolic savings if the plant uptakes amino acids but my belief is that the microbes feed first in the soil and so they're going to take that those amino acids and convert it um, into nitrate The reason I like amino acids is because of the particle size, either they're in liquid form or they're in a powdered form that you can feed and they're, they're very quickly available. And so it really gives you more control as a grower when it comes to nitrogen management. Um, and I also want to mention that all organic amendments are amino based. They're all protein based. So they're enzymatically broken down into amino acids. Um, and so even when you apply alfalfa meal, that is a sort of amino-based source of fertility. It's just a, a much larger particle size that takes longer to break down in the soil uh, microbially. So that's sort of an interesting um, thing to me. I, I think more about particle size than I do about uh, the source of the nitrogen, whether hmm. the label says amino acids or whether the label says soybean meal, for example. Um, and so my, my thinking's evolved on that a bit. I don't know where I was going with that other than, oh, the nitrogen cycle. So the other thing I think growers need to think about is when you apply a huge amount of amendments, um, organic amendments, that microbial action that breaks those amendments down is consuming a lot of oxygen. So the reason that it's usually pretty intuitive and pretty uh, well understood that you should let your soil cook before planting um, is because all those amendments are turning into ammonium before they turn into nitrate. And ammonium is really not a preferred plant available source of nitrogen. So that's the one thing. But in that process, those microbes are consuming a tremendous amount of oxygen. And that's a huge challenge for growers because people are trying to flip, you know, into the next round as quickly as possible. And sometimes you don't have three weeks to let your soil cook or let those, those amendments break down. And so Honestly, if you can never let your soil get so depleted that you're applying enormous amounts of those organic amendments, that's the best solution. Um, you're just kind of constantly either top dressing or feeding um, nitrogen as the plants need it. And you never let your, your nitrate get to 2 ppm and have to apply like massive amounts of any of these amendments. Because once you plant into it, those young plants are not going to like the high ammonium, low oxygen environment. That's interesting because the way I've always described it and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, my understanding is as we add a lot of uh, nutrients, you know, in this case, we're talking about nitrogen. um, One, I've noticed that different uh, nitrogen sources will create different microbial communities and different sort of bacterial blooms. Um, 
certain things are, are seem to be more balanced from a microbial perspective, like alfalfa meal versus some of these other amendments. But um, I've always described it as um, sort of like the you, you add all these nutrients, you've created this feast for all the bacteria, archaea, fungi, protozoa in in the soil. It's a, the bacteria. It's sort of an exothermic reaction. They're generating heat as they reproduce, and that's creating this. You know, it's essentially thermally composting your soil. And plant roots also don't like a lot of that temperature and they may not be able to access the nutrients as efficiently. Like you said, the microbes feed first. So even if there's sufficient fertility in that soil, if the bacteria is actively like reproducing um, at high levels, then those nutrients aren't going to be available to the plant. And you could see um, deficiencies expressed in the plant, even though, well, probably due to, like you said, excess ammonium, uh, root hair death from uh, soil temperatures, uh, a lack of oxygen. So a variety of factors potentially affecting it. So what, what we try to do is, like you said, you, you have high fertility in the soil. You go to reamend, and by having a larger volume of soil, like in a bed, when you go to reamend, you don't have to add as much nutrients as you would to that same volume of soil if it was grown in like a seven-gallon pot. So we don't have to, it's not going to heat up. It's not going to go through quite those extremes, um, and it doesn't need to sit as long, too, in in my experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, just to keep things moving along here, um, what are some of the ones that even you aren't concerned about? You know, I had mentioned sulfur as sort of a luxury nutrient. Um, what are some other ones that you're like, okay, there may be a little too much here, but I'm not too concerned? Yeah, well, if I had a magic wand, I would reduce sulfur. Um, just because again, it's, it's oh, okay. putting undue pressure on EC. But there's no, but besides that, I have no issues with high sulfur. And I actually just think it's um, if you, if you're, if you in order to get high calcium and high potassium, you just sort of have to use, you're, you're going to see high sulfur and that applies to compost too. Like you're just uh, a lot of compost, you're going to see high sulfur. So it's a bit unavoidable in most organic systems and it doesn't create real negative effects in the plant. But like I said, if I could just wave a magic wand, I would reduce it because it's, it's, uh, it's in luxury levels and it's putting upward pressure on EC. I, let's see other nutrients. I mean, I really like high levels of calcium. I've always liked running high levels of calcium. Um, I've never seen real negative effects from that. I have always liked, um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say high levels of any micronutrient because that can, you can run into issues, but compared to other crops and um, other just sort of target levels of nutrients, I generally like slightly high manganese. And when I see luxury levels of manganese, I'm not too worried about it as long as it's not surpassing mm. iron. And as long as the tissue test isn't showing anything super out of whack. Um, luxury levels. I mean, potassium, um, can be pretty high without concern, especially, um, again, as, as long as the calcium levels are high enough on the tissue test in week two of flower, I think having pretty high potassium levels is not a problem whatsoever. Um, 
And I think that's about it. I don't think I want anything to be too excessive. And even the things I just named can be excessive. I literally just looked at a soil test and I recommended um, leaching because potassium was too high. So I'm, I'm sort of putting my foot in my mouth. But I think those three nutrients generally I like to see in pretty high levels that cannabis plants generally respond well to high concentrations. So some are just more concerning, I guess, um, in terms of their detrimental or negative effects at high levels versus others that you're like, okay, it's high, but you're still going to get a good crop out of it. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. And obviously we're talking about like, it depends on how high, but yeah, I mean, there's a pretty big range, I guess is my point that, um, the plants will do pretty well. in. I think the, yeah, I mean, it's not like chloride or sodium or, um, copper. If I saw copper at 60 parts per million, I'd be really worried. That makes sense. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, (laughs) let's do some, let's talk about, uh, some of the stuff you have going on here, because, you know, we've given out a lot of information here. You have other resources available through Soil Doctor Consulting. Um, What are some of those things that people can utilize you for? Yeah, thanks. So um, pretty much my two major offerings of things that I obsess about every day and think about all the time. Um, Last year, I put together a course called Become a Cannabis Soil Expert, and it, it includes... It's a course that includes over 12 hours of self-guided video content that details really everything about organic nutrient management in cannabis. Um, so growers can come become more self-sufficient in managing their nutrition in-house. And so I've put a lot of time into that. There's a number of different modules and, and dozens of videos that really just dive into the fundamentals of um, techniques and soil targets and plant tissue targets and how to amend soil and essentially write their own program, um, taking control and having the confidence to do all this stuff organically uh, in-house with data and precision, which is something that I think has been lacking um, in the industry for a while. The other thing that I've been working on obsessively every single day is this soil doctor tool, which is a, it's a, it's a digital, I'll call it just a tool Um, that's intended to sort of be a digital agronomist for nutrient management in cannabis. So growers enter a few pieces of information about their their grow along with soil tests. And the tool spits out a precision organic nutrient recommendation to assist in making um, a decision about what to apply to your soil and in what quantity. Um, And it uses a fairly complex mathematical model to really determine the rates. I want to dive into that, but I don't want to gloss over your soul course. Um, I want to talk a little more about that uh, before sure. we move on because I've I've taken the course. Um, I think it's probably the best online tool for cannabis growers that want to understand how to properly amend your soil, how to soil test, um, what the different amendments are, and how to utilize them in your soil. Uh, you give a lot of information in there, um, and the ability to comment on the modules, uh, all the, all the short videos. Um, I was able to do it over a period of uh, a few weeks, um, just kind of diving in and watching a video here and there when I had time, kind of letting it mull over and process and then coming back to it, asking questions and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't want to just 
skip over the fact that this is a pretty comprehensive course that you put together. I know it took, I, I, as someone who's working on putting together like a botany course and some other tools, I know how much work went into that uh, to create. So, yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for your, thanks for your positive words. The positive feedback I've gotten from you and other growers has been really humbling. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Are you adding to that at all? Or what are some of the things that you've, I, I know you've gone back and made some changes as you're learning too, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah. So what does I that added look like? a, yeah, I added a topsoil module. So there's, there's, there were originally five modules, um, probably 10 hours of content. And I added a sixth one on, on outdoor cultivation. And so, which really was my bread and butter, um, years ago. And so I just kind of go into the different tools, techniques, cultivation techniques, irrigation techniques, and, and ultimately nutrient management methods for outdoor topsoil. And that was the biggest addition in the last year. And then I also go through and I, yeah, I update things as I learn more. I change some of the target levels as I, as I go. Um, I try to do that on a six month basis and I only update the course when it's codified. I'll change things in my, um, my agronomic model or my consulting practice a little bit, and I'll let that run for six months before I update the course. So the course is sort of the encyclopedia. Um, and I try not to update it too much, but I'm on there constantly. As soon as someone, um, if someone asks a question or if there's any conversation happening, I'm, I'm on there, um, that day within 24 hours. So the updates happen usually on a six month basis. Now I would say for, I'd be curious to hear Tad for listeners on a scale of one to 10, what, what is the technical nature of the course? Would you say 10 being very technical, very advanced growers, only one being beginner growers who have their, you know, are in their first cycle in a 10. That's a great question. I think it's a sliding scale a little bit. So like the first section of the course to me was sort of information I already knew. Um, and no offense, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was, it was fairly basic in nature just to give you a, a overline or an outline of, of sort of what these different amendments are, uh, you know, what are your options for nitrogen? What are your options for, for phosphorus, potassium, these sorts of things. And then as you get further into the course, it gets, you know, it gets sort of as technical as you want it to be, um, in a lot of ways. Um, the audience that listens to this podcast is, is pretty savvy and pretty technical. Like I, 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 you know, I, I've interviewed geneticists and neuroscientists and, you know, people like yourself that are experts in their field. And so I, I feel like, um, I'm kind of dancing around the answer here. Uh, I think this course is for anyone who's really passionate about soil science and wants to understand the why, because it's one thing to be able to, um, you know, take a soil test and send it off to a consultant or, plug it into a calculator and get a result. But it's another thing to kind of understand what's actually going on so that you can make actionable decisions. So um, I throw it like a, I guess overall, maybe a seven or an eight. So uh, where I think it makes sense is either you're, you're a hobbyist and you're super passionate about soil science and gardening, or if you're a commercial cultivator that's using organics and not working, you know, closely with an agronomist or a consultant um, or a company that can do those things for you, then I think this is knowledge you absolutely need to have. Um, and uh, I, I think that's my answer. I, I will add that it's, you know, it's not, 
it's not a low price point um, of entry. It, it's an expensive course because of the amount of time and energy and research that goes into it, not just in creating it, but learning the material to be able to teach it. Um, but I think that's very affordable when we talk about um, a commercial uh, cultivator. Um, for a tent grower, it may not be uh, it may not be in the budget unless it's something you're really, really passionate about. Does that kind of answer it? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm, I have that curiosity because I don't know, you know, what level it's at to other people. But I also think I asked that just because I wanted maybe to highlight the, the fact, yeah, it's for, it's for passionate growers. It's not, it's like, it's not necessarily a dabbling course, I don't think. Um, maybe the first module is like you said. No, not at all. Like, I think you're, I think you're right on. It is, um, it is challenging. It makes you think it's like taking a, a course in sort of soil science with an emphasis on soil testing. And I think, uh, soilless media in a lot of ways. So if, if you want to, if you want to understand why the local agronomist doesn't give you a good recommendation for your cannabis grow, because they're looking at, you know, a Logan soil test and, trying to understand why your potting soil is performing differently. Well, this would explain it to you. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. And it covers, you know, like liquid feed recipes and foliars and various subtopics, but really the, the, the basis and the meat of the course is organic soil based, or I guess we should peat based, uh, cannabis cultivation. So I think people often ask like, people, people often ask, is it, would it benefit me if I'm an, if I'm not an organic grower? And the answer is I, some of the principles, the principles, absolutely. But all of the targets and the general uh, approach is definitely an organic approach. Um, I don't really talk about urea or, or you know, polymer coated fertility. It's just, it's, it's very much an organic based approach. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'll let you move on to explaining the, the tool now. Oh yeah. Okay. So the tool is sort of an extension. Thing. Yeah. It's a, the tool is an extension of this general philosophy that, that comes from the course too, which is test. Don't guess. Um, you know, my, my approach with the course and with this tool, um, is to recommend only what's needed to improve plant metabolism. So this tool will, you know, you enter information about your grow, um, your soil tests, and it, it does this complex mathematical calculation um, to determine amendment rates. And it's the opposite of the traditional kitchen sink approach in which we throw every biostimulant, enzyme, ferment, microbe, and nutrient at the plant and hope for the, ben the best. So, you can still, growers can still do that. You can apply your special sauce, whether that's a fungal compost extract or a high-end silica foliar or a micronized calcium or KNF mm -hmm. ferment, whatever. In addition to the amendments from the tool, but the tool is really supposed to hit the, the low-hanging fruit and it does so with data and precision because this the industry has always been so full of like, you know, blood blaster RX for terpenes or biocatalyze for microbes or whatever, fulvic biochar, yeah. sprouted, CalMag, foliar. So, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I do a lot of things in my, when I grow cannabis and in my orchard that are beyond just the bare minimum, I, I, I love a lot of that stuff. But I guess my point is you have to start with the fundamentals first. You have to make sure that 
nutrients are sufficient, available, balanced um, before all of that other stuff. And so this tool is really intended to make very accurate recommendations to make sure that all of the macro and micronutrients essential for the plant are in your soil in the best way possible. Yeah, that's, I think that's, I want to go back and highlight what you just said, because that's so important. I see companies marketing product-based grow methodologies all the time, you know, like add this product, add that product. Um, and you can absolutely do that. And, and like you said, you can use all of these ferments and, and other things. But at the end of the day, if you don't have sufficiency in your major, your, your major nutrients, uh, it's, it's not going to matter. That, that's going to be your limiting factor of growth. So I always start with what's my limiting factor of growth? And if it's fertility, I want to figure out what cation or anion it is. Um, and then if you know you apply some sort of pumpkin extract and you get a plant response, I want to figure out why rather than continuing to buy a product that's you know mostly liquid and, and probably overpriced, I want to know what what is in there that's making a difference because it, it means you have something that's limiting your plant's health or growth. Um, and so uh, start with sufficiency, start with a good foundation, like you said, and, and something that's interesting. Cause when I first started, I started off using these soil calculators. The, the initial ones were based off of, um, getting, uh, nutrient density. So not necessarily optimal yields when we talk about cannabis, but just an overall sufficiency of, or, or, or not even sufficiency, but higher levels of, of nutrient fertility to make sure that that grown edible crop is going to be um, healthier, sort of the Steve Solomon's approach, essentially. And I found it worked. It works okay. It works fine. And, and you get you get some good information from there. And those calculators, you know, are not bad. And then there's I've seen other calculators come out um, for cannabis too. But for me, there's more information I want than just what's on a soil test when I'm evaluating a garden and trying to make amendment recommendations. And you know, the, the tool that you put together, uh, has other variables, um, associated with that. And, and so can you kind of talk about what those are and why they're important? Yeah, sure. So when I think about, I just want to step back. And when I think about photosynthesis, I think about light, I think about CO2, water, temperature, and nutrients. And this tool is only focused on the nutrient part of it, helping growers understand and apply nutrients in a better, more precise way to focus on that bottleneck of photosynthesis. So if your environment's off, this tool isn't necessarily going to help. Um, if you're not watering correctly, this, this, this doesn't, it's not going to address that. And I think that you've been really good um, at pointing out that this isn't a panacea for growing. It's not like an automated, you know, it's not going to solve all your problems. But the idea here is it's focused on nutrient management. So the variables, when you go into the tool, you set up an area and you choose whether you're indoor or outdoor because that matters. You also choose your cycle length because the tool changes nutrient levels slightly depending on if your plants are going to be in the soil for less than 12 weeks or longer than 16 weeks. So for example, the nitrogen amendment quantities are increased a bit for a long-term or full-term crop versus a soil intended for like a nine-week flower. Um, I'll add that the difference here is relatively small because like I said, I like to maintain um, 
concentrations as opposed to trying to preload too heavily. Um, but there's a happy balance that the tool is trying to achieve there. It also, it also asks you for your soil volume, which is a big deal as anyone who's grown in a seven gallon pot versus a 30 gallon pot. Um, there's a difference there. And the tool actually out takes your soil vol volume and it outputs the quantity of amendments for your entire soil volume, as well as per just a, you know, a cubic yard of soil. So you can kind of choose, um, which, which way you go there. And then it also, when you're setting up an area, ask for, uh, your compost. And this is an interesting conversation that we've had Tad. compost might be the biggest variable in living soil nutrient management because all composts are wildly different. So the tool asks for the nutrient levels on the compost um, from a compost analysis, which most growers don't have, and that's okay. And if you don't have it, it asks for what the compost is made out of. So at least it can make an estimate. It can model the nutrient numbers based on the feedstocks of that compost. Um, yeah, so, that's, I, yeah, go ahead. I just want to add to that because one of the things we're going to talk about was soil recipes, but I, I don't think we have time. But the one thing I want to highlight there is that uh, – I see people in forums still all the time saying, oh, I'm going to run Mike's mix or John's bloom mix or whatever. Um, but really all of these online soil recipes are going to be somewhat inaccurate just because they're all going to be sourced from different composts. So if you really want to formulate a soil or, you know, a, a potting soil or a media correctly, it needs to start being formulated around what fertility is in your compost. So I just wanted to throw 100%. that out. Yeah, 100%. Uh, a compost made out of uh, fish and hardwood aged for a year versus a compost made out of yard waste turned six times in six weeks in oh, yeah. middle America versus a compost made out of lobster waste on the East Coast. The, the, the nutrient profile between those three is striking. The difference, the difference in the nutrient profile is striking. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the only other thing that you would enter in the soil doctor tool in the area section is, is your preferred nitrogen sources. So growers get to choose up to four nitrogen amendments that the recommendation will use. Um, our default is usually to use four soybean meal, alfalfa meal, granular poultry manure, and blood meal to optimize nitrogen release rates and microbial diversity. But it doesn't really matter, honestly. Like, I think the most important thing is for growers to do their own research and choose the best sources of nitrogen for their operation and for their values. Um, and there's very subtle pros and cons of nitrogen sources, but the point is that people can customize um, the output a bit mm -hmm. based on their amendment preferences. Um, so yeah, I mean, the inputs to the model are taking as many things as possible that influence nutrient management and trying to account for those and trying to change the recommendations and trying to um, model the entire nutrient system in, a, in an organic um, way and use data from both the standard and pace test to spit out a um, calculated recommendation as a guidance tool. So I always, I like to tell people that the recommendations are, are guidance. It's like, okay, based on all the information I have, here's the best advice I can give. Um, and you get a fairly comprehensive recommendation with notes about the soil and precision, you know, recommendations and a bunch of tips about how to apply the amendments. The report is is pretty awesome, um, and so that's kind of the, what I've been working on. And honestly, for it's like five years in the making because I've been, I've just gone so deep into this that uh, there's just a lot of you know, dozens of conversations, and I think I've looked at like five thousand peat-based soil tests and 
done calibration experiments and um, taken just classic agronomic um, research and, and all tried to incorporate it into this, this one tool for growers to use. Yeah, I I had looked into doing something like this years ago, and frankly, I just realized I didn't have the brain power to uh, calculate for all the variables that I really wanted to in a in a in a tool. And you've gotten more in there than anyone else I've seen. Um, it's pretty it's pretty impressive, honestly, um, that, that you're Thanks, able Dad. to pull that together. Yeah, and, and I will say like. Um, you know, when I, when I sit down with a grower or, or Brandon who works with me um, on that, we'll look at, you know, because, because we're having a conversation with the grower, we can, we have them send us photos and we look at videos sometimes of their grow space, or we'll look at, um, you know, can we look at photos of the plant uh, up close if you're having challenges, plus, uh, you know, entire, the entire plant so we can look at for hidden and mobile nutrient issues. Uh um, you know, we check on what their environment is, all of these different things that can affect, again, just trying to figure out what that limiting factor of growth is um, and if it is indeed fertility. But barring the ability to do a full on like comprehensive consult, which is something that you offer too, if people want to go down that route, I think this is the best available online tool out there. And if I were, if I were a grower and just looking to get, you know, I had a soil test and I needed to get a result, um, and I wanted to do it affordably, I would absolutely use, use your soil doctor tool. I think it's, I think it's awesome. So. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And it's one of those things where it's like, I sort of leave it up to head growers or you (laughs) and Brandon or IPM experts to like really identify the top latent viroid or, you know, like a watering issue. There's so many things I just can't address. I can't address all of it. So the tool is really intended to be, it is intended to be like just focused on one specific area where you guys could use the tool in your more holistic analysis. So it's not, yeah, I wouldn't call this a holistic agronomic tool. It is a nutrient organic nutrient management tool. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Um, well, we've already been talking for over an hour here. <laughs> uh, I, I, I could, I could talk to you all day. Honestly, I love all of our conversations. I always learn something new. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to share though, before we, uh, before we sign off? You know, I don't think so. Um, yeah, we could, we could go on and on. I feel like we do sometimes, um, even in preparation, you called me, asked me to come on and we ended up talking for an hour. So it's easy to to burn an hour talking about these topics. Um, but no, there's nothing else that's popping out in my head. I think, um, something I've been really excited about and thinking just more about in general is just particle size of amendments. Um, mm-hmm. And there's always the topic of water and pH adjustment, but I think we actually addressed that in our, in the last podcast. And I'm happy to, to chat about that at a, a later point on a, on a live video or another podcast. Um, Cause those are big topics. Yeah. I'd love to get you back on. I mean, lately what's been on my mind is uh, watering as well. Um, I think that's always something that I'm always thinking about. Uh, you know, I mentioned, I just got a bunch of house plants and so I'm learning how to water differently for different plants in different media, which has been really interesting. And then also, uh, heavy metals, just, um, there's so much there that we have to learn and there's so many variables that affect heavy metal uptake that, um, 
I, I, it's one of those topics that I just, I, I keep learning more and more about and, and I'm, I'm interested in more. Cause I also think about my health. Like I mentioned this the other day on a podcast, I was in, I was in Costco the other day and I was, um, looking at some, um, organically grown, um, what was it? Uh, trying to remember the vegetable. It might've been, um, let's just, let's just say, uh, tomatoes. Uh, so I was looking at organic tomatoes grown in Mexico versus, uh, greenhouse grown tomatoes conventionally grown in California, which is actually going to be healthier for my family. Um, those ones in Mexico, I don't really know what the heavy metals levels are. Um, they probably weren't a ton of pesticides applied necessarily or other, um, inputs that I might have issue with on that greenhouse or hothouse grown tomato. I don't know. Um, it definitely, I'm definitely thinking less in terms of organics versus like conventional and more in terms of like healthy and sustainable, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot about nutrient density. I always have, again, Steve Solomon was, I think a major like pioneer in that space for me. Um, I got started with his book probably 10 years ago or something. And yeah it is just such a, it is such an important thing. And I, I'm curious if ever in our lifetime, we're going to be able to quantify that. It'd be really nice to know. The other thing I think a lot about is because I know how crops are grown, um, a lot of them, not all of them, but sometimes I know what's more likely to be sprayed and what's not. So like, you know, strawberries, for example, always freak me out. I tend to, Oh yeah. Yeah. Tend to, um, I, but, but like a, sometimes, sometimes I think well, that's like a pretty pest and disease free crop. So yeah, there's so many, it's a, it's a very complicated world. Um, when we start importing food. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, again, I appreciate your time. Maybe that's another conversation that people are interested too. Um, <laughs> cause it's something I've yeah. been thinking about a lot as well. Let me, but, let me uh, leave one more thought for the cannabis community as you know, in like this, this era of sort of low prices and a contraction in the market and things. You mentioned Costco. And I think three years ago, I did a big fun project with a massive organic blueberry farm in Pacific Northwest. And I did this big analysis and spent many days on the farm walking around their blocks, huge farm. Like I got lost. I couldn't find the exit of the farm. Um, and they were their fertility budget was a thousand dollars per acre. So they were spending a thousand dollars on organic inputs, liquid fish, hydrolysate, gypsum, microbes, like a lot of the stuff that we use. And I was blown away because a thousand dollars per acre is a lot. And when I asked him about that, the, the farm manager, he just made it really clear that when you're growing a high value crop, you can't skimp on your fertility budget. And that's not to say have an unlimited fertility budget for cannabis production. I'm not saying that because I am a fan of precision and not throwing the kitchen sink at it. But I also think people should forever be thinking about fertility and inputs and really focusing on nutrient management when you're trying to achieve a high value crop of any kind. And so I just want to leave it on that note because I think that other um, agricultural crops have really figured that out and they don't ever skimp on their fertility budget in a premium market, even when prices are low. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, for me, when I think about that, I think about my inputs being high quality in the sense of like, I'm not going to buy a, a shoddy biochar or cheap earthworm castings. If I can find a higher quality source, I'm willing to pay a little extra for it to know that what I'm getting is going to offer me all the benefits of what that product is. Um, Cause we do see a wide variety of, and again, it comes back to compost. Like compost is one of those things I will not skimp on. Soil is one of those things I will not skimp on. Um, if I'm looking at two different alfalfa meals, uh, you know, or fish meal or, or something like that, I might go with the lower price one or gypsum. If I can find a cheaper version of gypsum and you know, they're relatively similar, then I I have no problem saving money there. But yeah, I mean, good soil makes growing fun. I (laughs) I can't say that enough. And then use precision to just, to just apply only what you need and save the money and not applying excessive things, but apply high quality things because in a, in a living soil system or when you're just reusing your soil round after round, um, or if you have a topsoil where it's not going anywhere and your kids are going to inherit it, the quality does matter. And the microbial communities over time really do respond well to that. So I agree with you. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Don't fall for the marketing hype that you see all over social media these days. Uh, it drives me nuts. <laughs> all right, man. Well, Hey, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for your time. And, uh, let's do this again sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me on Todd. That was Bryant Mason of Soil Doctor Consulting, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. Don't forget to check out the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab, then Podcast. And please take a time to leave us a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. I do read them all and appreciate the feedback. And more reviews help us rank higher so others can help find the show. Thanks for listening.